of our Believe series. And our Believe series is a 30-week series where we go over some of the specifics of our faith and why we believe what we believe. And today I was really, really excited about this one, um, but I have to give like a little preface. Um, there was way more that I wanted to share about why we trust in the Bible and why we believe in the Bible than I can share in 35 minutes. So I'm going to blast through some stuff. If we go a little bit long, I apologize, but um, I was really excited about this one. Let me tell you why. Um, when, I, when I became a new believer, um, one of the first things God did in my life was gave me a hunger and a thirst for his word, and it wasn't what I was expecting. When I was in the Navy, um, we were on deployment, and when you're on deployment, you do a whole lot of training. Um, it's how you, they keep you from going crazy. And uh, we had to study, we had to watch these really, really old videos about the Geneva Convention. If you know anything about combat, the Geneva Convention is this thing where they, all the countries got together and they said, well, let's not torture each other's prisoners of war too bad. Ask me how that works, I have no idea. But it was, they all agreed, they said, let's be at least somewhat humane to our prisoners of war. Okay. Well, I was watching this video about the Geneva Convention. And in the video, they were interviewing this guy who was a, he was a pilot during the Korean War. And during the Korean War, his plane crashed, and he became a prisoner of war. Now, when his plane crashed, his, his leg was just was completely mangled in the crash. And they're interviewing this guy. It's been years later. He was set free. He was released. And he was kind of explaining from a personal perspective why we have the Geneva Convention, and what information he was able to give his captors, and what information he wasn't. And he had mentioned that the hardest part of what he was doing, the hardest part of being a prisoner of war was not the slop they were giving him as food. It wasn't the rats that they lived with. He said for him, the hardest part of the Geneva Convention, or I mean the hardest part of his prisoner of war captivity um, with, in the war was his leg, when it smashed, they specifically wouldn't let it heal right. And so as time went on, his broken leg had, had kind of fused into place, broken from the plane crash. And he said the hardest part of the war was that his captors didn't even watch him because they knew he couldn't go anywhere. He said the hardest part of the war was my captors were watching everybody else and they just laughed at me. He said I, that was worse than the food, that was worse than the rats, that was worse than being away from home was the fact that I, he was a prisoner of war and nobody cared because... He was, so, he was so limp and unable to walk that they were like, what's he going to do? Is he going to crawl out of here? We'll just let him be. And I remember I was watching this video on deployment, and it was during a season of my life that God was already getting my attention about a lot of things. I wasn't walking with him. I was raised in a Christian home. I was like, I'm a Christian by default. I can prove it by my tattoos. You know, I was like, I'm, I, I called myself a Catholic Christian. Like, I didn't follow Jesus, but if you insulted Jesus in front of me, I'd punch you. Because that's what Jesus would do. I don't know. But I was like, I wasn't walking with Jesus. But God was getting my attention during this time. And I remember I was watching this video. And God kind of spoke out to me. Not verbally, but kind of through this video. He kind of said, Mike, that's you. And I remember I was like, what do you mean? And he had showed me kind of in my heart that, you know, there was once a time in my life when I was probably a threat. Maybe. There was a time in my life where the enemy might have had to keep an eye on me. But there wasn't, that wasn't happening anymore. You're not a threat. <laughs> the enemy laughs at you. You can't even walk out of here. And I remember he was showing me that spiritually, I had grown. I had been broken and I had grown crooked. And, and I needed a, a fresh break. Well, this guy, this, this, this POW, he ended up getting back to the United States. And 
most of you probably have an idea of what they had to do. They had to take that fused leg, re-break it, which is always fun, and then they had to put the right bracing on it and let it grow, and today he walks. And I remember God was showing me that, Mike, you need to be broken, and you need some braces in your life, because you don't, you don't follow me, you don't walk after me. And it was one of the first things that, that God did to get my attention. Now, there's a whole lot of elements of how God got my attention throughout that time, but what I wanted, the reason I show you that story is because it was during this time that I said, okay, God, I have it written down in my journals. I used to write it down every night. I have tons of journals, and I keep them because I'm a weirdo. I'm like a little girl inside. And uh, <laughs> I, have this, I have in my journals, I, I had this one prayer because I didn't know what else to pray. I used to pray from this video, from watching this video, I used to pray, God, break me and rebuild me because I've grown crooked. And I used to pray all the time because I didn't know what else to pray. And God answered that prayer, and you know what he did? I wanted God to speak into my life and give me some big wisdom or help me believe or do something majestic where I would go, oh my gosh, look at what God did. I was convinced he was going to do something. And you know what God did? He made me fall in love with the Bible. He did it in a way that I didn't expect. He knew that I needed to be broken, and he did. He, he broke me in the sense that he ripped me away from most of my close relationships. Most of my close relationships were just bathed in sin. And uh, he, he ripped me from those relationships, and he gave me his word as my brace. And I healed over the next year, and all I had was his word. But it wasn't a punishment. It was one of the best blessings I had in my life. I, I, on, on deployment, I read the, the Bible from cover to cover twice because I couldn't get enough of it. God answered my prayer by giving me this incredible, incredible hunger for his word. And as we dive into the Bible and what the Bible's for, you know, I, I want you to, to maybe take a step back and maybe approach the Bible differently than you may have in the past. Growing up in a religious country, whether you're LDS or Jehovah's Witness or Evangelical Christian, sometimes the Bible, we don't look at the Bible and go, oh man, I wish I could get home and dive into the Bible. The way I used to look at the Bible was, well, I, best, I guess I have to read it, like I have to shovel the driveway. Oh, I've got to pay my taxes and read my Bible. It was never a joy. And, and for the first time in my life, God had opened up this thing where he gave me this thirst for his word that I couldn't, I couldn't get enough of it. I couldn't stop reading. And as we were getting ready for this message and getting ready for this series, God's doing it again where he's saying, Mike, don't forget. His promise to me was, taste and see that the Lord is good. That was his <coughs> promise to me from King David in Psalms 34. He said, Mike, taste and see that the Lord is good. It's not, I'm, not, I'm not trying to get you to drink Pepto-Bismol. You're going to feel better, but it's going to suck. That's not what he was doing. He's saying, you need a clean palate. You need to start drinking from my well. You need to start eating my bread. You need to start engaging my word. And you're going to see yourself that it's good. So as we dive into this, that was a really long intro. We're gonna, I have too much to share in a little, bit of a little tiny bit amount of time. But I want to encourage you to, if you've been looking at the word as a chore, as a bummer, as a God, God's mad at me because I didn't read today, Stop looking at God's word as medicine and start looking at it as nutrients. And, and I, I promise you, if you come to him the same way that God had brought me to him, I'm doing it again all over again right now. I'm like, okay, God, I want to hunger for your word again. I don't want a book about your Bible. I don't want a book that encourages something that, you know, so I don't have to read the Bible. I want to read your Bible. I want to read your word. Maybe you need to approach it differently today as well and say, okay, this is God's word. I'm going to taste and see that the Lord is good. 
Our verse for today is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. 2 Timothy, and I'll read it out for you. In this one he says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you for your word. I thank you that you didn't leave us in darkness. You didn't leave us in clouded in mystery and confused, but you gave, you revealed your word to us. You didn't make us sit and wait for a verbal message, but you, you gave us everything we need and you handed it to us. Lord, I pray we would be just as excited to pick up your words as that tribe in Indonesia was that we would be so excited to dive into your truth, into your promises, and engage your story like that tribe was. Lord, I pray we wouldn't take for granted what it means to have the words of the Almighty God right in front of us. I pray that you would give us a hunger. Give us a hunger for, for, for what you have to say in our lives. Give us an appetite to hear from you. Lord, we love you and we thank you and we trust you. We ask this in your name. Amen. So to kind of give an overview of the Bible, there's three areas I want to show you. The first one is I want to show you four things we know about the Bible. Four things we know about the Bible. The first one is the Bible is, in, is inspired by God. Let me explain what that means, inspired by God. That word God breathed in that passage is the Greek form of a Hebrew word that we see in the beginning of the Bible in Genesis when when God breathed air into Adam's lungs. It's the same word. It's the form in a different language, but it's the same word. Which means when he says that the Bible is breathed by God, he's actually using a word that says, just like when Adam was created from dust, but then God breathed life into Adam, something that is beyond our understanding. He says that he has breathed life into scriptures. It is inspired by God. That's why if you've ever taken some time to engage God's word, it might do something that other books can't do, which is it comes alive. There's a way that God's word starts to come alive and apply itself and open up new understanding to us, and that's because it was breathed out by God. And this is kind of exciting and kind of cool because there's no other book like the Bible. Now, when I talk about the Bible, I'm talking about 66 books that are closed into one volume. That This one volume has... 40 authors, at least 40 authors. There's a couple books we don't know who the author is. We just know it's truth. 40 authors over 2,000 years. 40 authors over 2,000 years. It was written by kings. It was written by prophets. It was written by servants. It was written by shepherds. It was written by people of all different classes. It was written on three different continents. It was written over the course of 2,000 years, and yet... See, anybody can collect writings from all, all across time and throw them together. But here's the crazy part of the Bible, and this is why it's unique, and it kind of has God's touch in it of being inspired, is it's all in agreement with itself. Over 2,000 years, from the richest to the poorest, written, it was written in a palace, it was written in prison, and yet it all agrees because it was breathed out by God. It was breathed out by God. Um, the, the second thing is the Bible has been protected and preserved. Now, here's where I'm going to put my nerd hat on a little bit. 
some of the nerds out there are going to appreciate this. I would challenge you, we talked about this a little bit on Easter Sunday about the proof of the resurrection of Jesus. But I would challenge you to look at the antiquity of the Bible, not even from a faith standpoint, but just from, from an archaeological and historical standpoint. The Bible stands alone. It was preserved unlike any piece of writing all through history. If you, if you ever look at it, and here's the nerd hat. It's a fedora, in case you were wondering. Nerds wear fedoras. Um, it, when you look at antiquities, what they want to do, okay, ready? I'm going to nerd out for a minute. They're going to take an, an, a writing, an antiquity writing, like the Bible, like Homer's Iliad, and they're going to, they're going to take it and they're going to say, what's the oldest copy we have of it? Okay, now how close is the oldest copy to the original writing? And they'd say, okay, well, that's this many years. And then they say, how many copies do we have of it? And they would take the different copies, and then they would lay them out. And they would say, okay, so we have this one that was written 400 years after the original. It's our oldest copy. And then we have this one that it was transcribed. It's 800 years after the original. And they would compare it and say, how similar are they? It's a big game of telephone. You would expect that this one that's the closest to the original is going to have a whole lot of differences from this one that's 800 years later. And then they compare it. And in antiquities, that's how they, they kind of figure out how authentic a writing is. So Homer's Iliad, for example, the oldest copy we have is 500 years after the original. So we don't have one in between that first 500 years. And then we have 643 copies of it leading up to when it stops becoming antiquity, before the printing press, pretty much. When it was still being passed down, we have 643 copies of it. So that's a lot. That's a, that's a, I mean, that's, that would take me a while to go through each one of them and say, what's, what are the similarities? What are, how much did it change over the years? The Bible, the 66 books of the Bible together, there's over 24,000 of them. Wow. 24,000, which means they can compare... The individual letters, now that's, that's the whole book, that's 66 books combined is there's 24,000 of them. The oldest document on earth is the book of Job. Just so you know, the oldest document on earth, doesn't matter what faith you're from, this is science, boom, science, mm -hmm. is the book of Job. And then what they, and so like the letters in the New Testament, there's only a hundred year gap between when it was written and the oldest one we have. And when we discovered in the, in the mid-19th century, mid-20th century, we discovered a, 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 a cave that had a whole bunch of scrolls in it. We call them the Dead Sea Scrolls. And we were able to take an older look, hundreds of years older look, at some of the documents that we've used for the Bible. And, and when they compare them, the change, they say that the, the, the comparison between the two is 99.9% .9 accurate. There's only 40 ish um, changes throughout all those texts and none of them have to do with important doctrine they're all just grammar spots 99.9 percent and if you read historians they will talk about the process in which the bible was preserved and when they would copy a scroll they would copy it like a masterpiece you know you can go to a museum today and you can see a, a masterpiece that was copied by a professional artist a hundred years after the original, and, and unless you know what you're looking for, unless you're a professional and an expert, you won't be able to tell the difference because they have mastered that art and that person's hand in how they painted so well that they can mimic the piece, and only an expert can tell the difference. That's why if you watch movies like Da Vinci Code and stuff like that, they'll turn over the painting and they'll go, is it real? From the front, it looks real. On the back, does it have the mark? Because you can't tell. 
And when these scholars, over time, when they would, the transcribers, when they would transcribe the, the books of the Bible, they would transcribe it to such a point that they would spend sometimes months and months on one scroll. And if there was one, if whoever their overseer was saw one mistake, they would burn the scroll and start over. Because they knew they were dealing with God's inspired word, and they couldn't mess it up. See, our, our Bible has been preserved. The next one, number three, is the Bible can be trusted. The Bible can be trusted. Um, one of my favorite passages about the, the trustworthiness of Scripture is when, when Jesus first came on the scene. Three of the Gospels tell the story of Jesus getting baptized, and then he comes up, a dove lands on him. Somehow that was significant. I don't know history. Uh, but then God spoke, and God spoke to this huge group of people and said, this is my son who I am well pleased. Big deal. Just so you know, God's never spoken to me verbally where everybody heard it. Sometimes I feel like he's speaking to me, but that could just be delusion. But like, like he spoke to everybody, and everybody there was like, something special about him, because God just talked to, to all of us about him. Well, then Jesus does this crazy thing. So he just gets the Holy Spirit, drops on him on the dove. God says, big stamp of approval, this is my son. Everybody's like, wow, this guy's significant. And then he goes into the wilderness for 40 days, as scripture says, to be tempted by the devil. And in those 40 days, he learns how to rely on God and the angels minister to him. But here's, here's what I'm getting to. Satan comes to Jesus, Satan himself. Remember, Jesus is a threat. He doesn't have a limp leg. All forces are on Jesus. Satan comes to Jesus to tempt him. And every time Satan tempted him, Jesus not once spoke for himself. And not once did he say, leave me alone, man. Not one time. You know what he did? He quoted scripture. He quoted Deuteronomy and he quoted Psalms to Satan. And here's the coolest part. Satan never gave a rebuttal. He never said, well, well yeah, that's in the Bible, but no. You know what he did? He moved on to the next argument. No further questions, your honor. Does that make sense? Next piece of evidence. Because Jesus knew that even Satan trusted in the power of Scripture. So much so that all he had to do was throw out Scripture, and Satan was like, dang it. Moving on to the next temptation. He didn't argue with Scripture. Jesus trusted in Scripture so much so that he didn't bother even saying any of his own words. He just recited Scripture, and the devil had no argument. Because he knew the power of Scripture. Um, I have, an old, I have a, a, a caveat here. How are we doing on time? I'm going for it. Um, <laughs> uh, I was raised in, with the understanding that it, the Bible, we kind of looked at the Bible as like it was just a book. Like it was just one book and you had, you know, like Lord of the Rings. It's one book. You start at the beginning you get to the conclusion. We know that's not true. It's God's story, but it's 66 books that in different ways over lots of time tell God's story. But I was taught really early in my faith, in my 20s, that you have to believe all the Bible or none of the Bible. Like you have to just buy it all or you have to get rid of all of it. And I think the purpose or the intention of that is true. I think you can trust the entire Bible. I make it my aim to trust the entire Bible. But as I get to know people who are new to Christianity, new to religion, to tell them that they have to agree with me on how Revelation is going to live out, how the flood happened, and how the creation happened in order for them to trust Jesus, I feel like that's not really accurate. Just all the top scholars in the world don't exactly agree on everything within the pages of the Bible. 
And so what I, my challenge is when it comes to, yeah, you can trust the Bible, but that doesn't mean that you can't trust Jesus before you trust everything. I mean that you have to trust everything else before you can trust Jesus. You can start with just trusting in Jesus. And if you're still curious or wrestling with other parts of the Bible, good. Wrestle with them. The Bible can be trusted, which means you can wrestle with it. You're not going to find it. You're not going to get to a spot where you go, huh, it was all made up here. You're not going to find a wall where somebody created the Bible in this big myth. The Bible can be wrestled with. And I tell people who, who kind of come to that idea that, well, I can't, I'm not a Christian because I don't fully believe in everything that Genesis says. Do you trust Jesus? Let, trust Jesus first. Let Jesus walk you into the rest of the, the Bible. You'll see Jesus start to jump off the pages. But just because I say the Bible can be trusted doesn't mean that you have to agree with my interpretation of everything in the Bible. Because, spoiler alert, nobody agrees with everything. That's why we go through a series like Believe, where we say we believe in certain things that we do believe these things. These are hills we will die on. These are battles we will fight because we believe they are essential to our faith. But not everything within the Bible is so clear that it's essential to your faith. We're gonna, I promise you I'm going to get to heaven, and I'm gonna, they're going to be like, well, you were 80%, right? <laughs> I'm all right with that. That's 80%. That's a B. I'll take a B. I'm not going to be so arrogant to say that I figured it all out. I'm not that smart. But I do trust that it's God's word. I trust that I can continue to seek it out, and I'm not going to find the lie where it was created. And I can trust it. I can build my life upon it. And number four is the Bible is intended to speak into our lives. And I want to share with you a passage out of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4 says, For the, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. See, the Bible, when I say the Bible speaks into our lives, I'm saying that God uses his word to discern the thoughts and intents of the heart. I want to I clarify that a little bit because if, if you say that in different circles, they'll go, well, the Bible speaks to me, so I'm going to set it on the table. I'm going to grab a cup of coffee and I'm going to wait. <laughs> so let's clarify a little bit. That's not what I mean. Can it happen? Absolutely. It happened in the book of Acts. God really did speak to people. He really did send messengers with his Holy Spirit. But I know from the Apostle Paul that all I need is Scripture and the Holy Spirit right now. And I don't need God to speak to me verbally anymore because he gave me everything I needed to hear. But what I do want to emphasize is when I say that the Bible speaks into our lives, is the Bible is sharper than any two-edged sword. The Bible does reveal all of our secrets. And it does reveal, expose, and show us some of the thoughts and intents of our heart. At our discipleship school Uncharted, we have... In all of our devotionals and all of our studies, we have two questions we ask every single day. And then we hold each other accountable to it. Really simple questions. First question is, what is God saying to me? Once again, we're not setting it on the table and waiting. What is he sharing? What is he saying to me through the scriptures? It's a pretty simple question. God's, God's invited us into his story. What is he showing us about our, what is he exposing in our hearts? But then the second question is equally as important, which is, what am I going to do about it? What am I going to do about it? We're not just asking the question for the sake of knowing. Um, Francis Chan, a, a pastor in California, he has this wonderful analogy that I've used a number of times. I'm going to use it again because I'm selfish. Um, 
he, he shares a story of how God speaks to us and sometimes how we choose to listen. And he says, if I came home and I asked my daughter, I said, hey, I need you to clean your room today. And then I left. I came back that evening. And he looks and the, the room's still dirty. And he said, didn't I ask you to clean your room? And she said, well, yeah, Dad. But what I did was I, I went ahead and I just studied your words. I even learned how to say clean your room in Greek. And he went, okay, okay, but I need you to go clean your room now. And he comes back the next, he comes back later that day, and he sees a circle of them praying. And he said, what are you guys doing? And they said, well, I just brought some friends over, and together we're talking about what you asked me to do. And he looks, and the room's still dirty. And he went, no, I just need you to clean your room, okay? Well, he comes back a little while later, and he can hear a nice little guitar strum. He comes in, and his, his daughter had written this beautiful song called Go clean your room. And him and, and, and her and her friends were singing it. And as much as he wanted to enjoy this song, he looked and said, but you didn't clean your room. And sometimes that's what we do with God. Is we, we talk about God revealing things in our lives. It's more, it's more than just you know, him saying these things. It's him exposing parts of our lives in the hopes that we would say, what am I going to do about it? Am I going to trust God and follow him? And that kind of leads us into our next section, which is, Four places to read God's word. This is nuts and bolts stuff. Down to brass tacks. Where do we read the word and why do we read the word? The first place we read is we read it in public. You know, for the first thousand years of the church, this is the only place you heard God's word. You, you would come to church and, and the, the clergy would read you from the scrolls. That's why if you read church history, there was a long time where they would read in Latin because it made them smarter, but the people didn't speak Latin. And they were like, some guys up there speaking in French, and I'm supposed to be edified through it. I don't know what's going on. That's where the printing press and all that stuff came along as they said, this doesn't work. But for a long time, you would come to a gathering and somebody would read to you. The New Testament letters, Paul's letters and the Gospels, he sent those letters to churches and they would gather the people together and they would read those letters. Which is why when we were going through Philippians last month, we talked about how Paul actually cusses in Philippians. And when we read it, you know, a kid reading that in private would kind of giggle. <laughs> Paul said the S word. But in public, the pastor had to read this letter that cussed. And then he had to look at their faces. And he was like, I'm sorry. It was Paul. Paul wrote it. I had to read it. Because they read it in public. This is where we learn how to listen and, and listen in silence. This is where in, in public, even from the very beginning, you listened and you contemplated. You didn't get to speak at this time. The next way that we read is we read it home, house to house. Um, this is where a lot of discipleship happens. This is where we get to read God's word, but then we get to speak into it as we hear things. Um, in, the, in the Chinese church, there's a, there's a book called Heavenly Man. I strongly encourage you, anybody who likes supernatural, incredible stuff. It's about a, a, a church planter in China. And it's kind of like reading the book of Acts, watching what God did in this guy's life. And, and it's called Heavenly Man. But in this, he tells what it was like growing up in the 70s and 80s with a, a, a huge resistance to the Christian church. And they would meet in private. And what they would do is they would take God's word. And if they got a Bible, they would celebrate like we saw that tribe celebrate. They would pray over the Bible. And then what they would do is they would tear out the pages. What? Yeah, they would tear out the pages and they would give each person a book. And then what they would do is it was their responsibility to memorize that book. And then they would bury the pages underneath their floor. And then they would come together and one by one, they would recite from memory the words that they had memorized. 
This is where a lot of discipleship happens, is it happens house to house. It's where we get to read the word, but we also get to speak up and ask questions. That's why we're so big on community groups. The third way is reading it on your own at home. Reading it on your own at home. This was unheard of until about a thousand years ago. Unheard of. Because before the printing press, we, we couldn't just go home and read the Bible. It, you couldn't take the scrolls home. But God, just like that video showed, at a certain time, God opened up his word to more people, and he did that to us. So now we can go study at home. This is also one of the things that sets Christianity apart from other faiths. Is Christianity is one of the few religions that encourages you to go home and study God's word. If, you've, if you haven't been a part of other faiths, you'd be surprised. Jehovah's Witnesses are encouraged to not read the Bible on their own, not without the lens of the watchtower, because you might come to your own conclusions. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Other faiths will tell you do not read on your own without our filter, without our interpretation. I, I agree that you could read the Bible. If I just opened up the Bible and just started randomly reading Joshua and Judges, I'd be like, we're supposed to kill people. <laughs> like, I'm sure of it. Okay, so there still is ways to misinterpret the Bible, but, but wrestling with God's word like the Bereans did, where they wanted to understand the truth of God's word, and they would wrestle and wrestle and wrestle with it. M one of my mentors in San Diego, he used to have this phrase called pre-chewed food. And he used to say that we're addicted to pre-chewed food, which when you're a baby, that's awesome. You ain't got no teeth. But as you get older, you come to a point where mushed up carrots isn't going to be enough, and, and you want to process and chew something on your own. But we're definitely a culture, maybe not in Utah, but definitely outside of Utah, where we don't, we don't dig into God's word on our own. We go to Lifeway Bookstore, and we find somebody else who did all the chewing for us. And they already chewed it up, and they spit it nice, and they spit it on a plate for us. And then they handed it to us, and we get to go, oh, there's the nutrients. Hmm. But we don't wrestle with it. And God's word is good for wrestling. God's word is strong enough to take our wrestling. If you've ever been to a good steakhouse, you want to enjoy every little bite. You want to enjoy, you want to put it, you want to chew on it, you want to savor it. That's why they'll team up sometimes wines that will help cleanse your palate before the next piece because they want you to experience every little bit of it. And that's how God's word is, is, is we want to experience the meat of the word, but that means we have to get away from pre-chewed food and learn how to chew it on our own. You know, there's a misconception within the church where we think that meat, the meat of the word, First um, Peter talks about we, when we're newly saved, we desire the milk of God's word, which is his grace. But then over time, we want the meat of his word. And as, as a pastor, often people come up and they'll say, I, I just wish there was more meat. And I, and I kind of go, well, what do you mean? And what they really say is like, I want to know like, the deep Hebrew, and I want to know, like, you know, like, I, I want to know, like, all the deep knowledge that it, you know, I want you to, like, really dig into it. But scripturally, meat, according to the Apostle Paul, the one who used the analogy in 1 Corinthians and 1 Peter, meat isn't deeper understanding. Meat is applying what you've eaten. Meat is letting the nutrients do their job, rather than what we sometimes think meat is, which is where we get a really big plate with lots of complicated stuff, and we take pictures of it and put it on Instagram. <laughs> but then by the time it comes to eat it, it's cold, and we're like, meh. All my friends think I ate it, though. <laughs> we, we have a problem when it comes to not when we don't dig into the word alone at, at home, when we're not digging into it. We, we, we kind of come into a place where 
we love to load up our plate and we love to put more on there than we could ever eat. And then when, it, then when we're kind of we're kind of bored of looking at it, we scoop it into the trash and we get another plate that we're not going to eat. And we fill it up way too full. And we've done this in theology a lot where instead of learning to apply the truths that God has given us, instead we want more truth. And God's like, I would love to give you more truth, but you've got to chew on what I gave you. You're getting weak. You're getting sick. Your spiritual life is, is, is just not strong. And it's because you keep pouring on these, these new plates, but you're not eating and applying what I've already given you. You know, I love the early church because the early church, if you were the early church, the most exponential growth that ever took place in Christianity took place in the early church. You know what they had? Almost every church that was growing in their knowledge of Christ had two things. They had a gospel, not four to compare against, one, and they had one letter. And you know what? It was more than they could ever chew. They were still trying to process and digest those two things. And then you come to us and we, hand, you know, we throw a Bible at somebody and we're like, get eaten. You know, and, and it's no surprise that we go, ah, that's good, but over here, hmm, over here. And then we forget that one of the main purposes of God's word is not just to see the knowledge, but to apply it to our lives. The fourth way that we study is in deeper studies. In deeper studies. Uh, I'm a... I'm a big fan of deeper studies as long as it's within the context of application. You know, you go to some of these Bible colleges around the country and, and people will sit around for hours and talk about deep philosophical and theological issues and they just want to drink coffee and talk about the, the deep wonders of God's word. But sometimes we forget that those things were meant to be applied. And if you're going to be a receiver of deep understanding of God's word, it is for the sole purpose of you pouring it back into somebody else. God's word is not for us to get smarter. Bible says knowledge puffs up, love edifies. It's for us to take that deeper knowledge to pour into somebody else. That's why God gives the goodness he does is so that we can then pour it into somebody else. Um, so if you, I mean, if, if you're in this room and you're like, I would love to go into full-time ministry one day, you're going to need to dive into some deeper knowledge. But remember, it's for the purpose of other people. It's not so that we feel smarter. And then lastly, the four ways the Bible helps us or helps you grow. This is directly from that verse. I'm going to read this verse one more time. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The first one is teaching. How does the Bible help us grow? Well, by teaching, not rocket science. We're here because we're, we want to be taught by God's word. The second one is reproof or rebuke. Um, the, the verse that uses the word rebuke, reproof is a good word. Ultimately, it has to do with conviction. And the reason that the Bible is something that helps us grow because of rebuking <coughs> is because sometimes we're wrong. Sorry. Sometimes we're dot, 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 brace yourselves, wrong. And this is why we believe that the Bible, that God's word, is the authority in our lives. This is another area that the Bible is set apart from other faiths. is because as a Christian, you can hold me accountable to this. Obviously, context and understanding comes into play. But we believe that the Bible, the same letters that Paul wrote, the same gospels that told the story of Jesus, and the Torah, the prophets, the, the, the Proverbs, the we believe that all of those things were given to us to help us grow and to teach us. 
We believe they're the authority. And we don't believe that there's another authority after that that oversees or supersedes that authority. Meaning, that's a really long way to say, if we see a biblical truth and it comes face-to-face -face with a cultural modern belief or understanding, the Bible wins. Some faiths, the prophet wins. And the prophet can change what the Bible says. The prophet can say, it used to mean that, now it means this. We believe this is closed. We don't believe that there is any room. The Holy Spirit agrees with God's word. The Holy Spirit agrees with God's word. The prophet's not going to reveal to you something that doesn't agree with God's word. So some churches, they'll say, that might say that in the Bible, but the prophet said. Some, some people, some churches will say, that might be what it says in the Bible, but our filter, or the, the eyes we look at it says this, and this is different. We will always say, if, it, if, it, if the truth is written in Scripture, that's what we're going to trust. And along those lines, um, I'm going to do another caveat because I'm selfish. Um, a few people have asked me why I don't support certain books or certain authors that are Christians, and, and I'm not going to name any. Um, I'm not against, I'm not opposed to very many authors, but I am opposed to movements where they take God's word and they say, you can't see what I see because I'm magic. But I'm going to tell you what the Bible says. Even though you won't see it in scripture, this is what it says. Some of them are end time books. Some of them are, like if there's an end time, there's a lot of end time books right now, tons of them. I mean, there's, man, smorgasbord of ways you can interpret the end times. And, and if, if there's a book that says, you can't see this, but I have special glasses that gives me a code, and since the Bible is one giant code, I can interpret the code, and the code tells me this, and you should trust it. To me, that's a giant red flag. If I can't see it in scripture without one person's perspective, I'm, on, I'm, on a dangerous, I'm in a dangerous place. The Bible's not a mystery. It's not a code. That's Gnosticism. Gnosticism says the more you follow God, the more of his giant mystery, like your Bible will open up and the pages and the words will change. No, that's Gnosticism. This is the revealed word of God. Revealed. Sunlight. Exposing. Revealed. There's no codes. The mystery of God was revealed in Jesus Christ. There's no more mystery. What we can do is we can continue to grow as the Holy Spirit interprets this and helps us understand it, but it's not hidden. And anytime somebody says, oh, that's what it says, but what it really means is this completely different thing, run. <laughs> Just run and say, my pastor told me that the Bible is the only authority. Okay? Because that's happening a lot right now. Because to some people, it's not, the Bible is just not exciting enough. So they have to add their own stuff to it. If you have to look at it through one person's lens, or if you have to look at it, if, if they're the only one that can see something, it's probably not truth. It's probably too good to be true. You know? We, we agree with Scripture. We don't need to add to it or change to it. Okay, I'm stepping off. Sorry. Third one. Correction. Yeah. Why, why do we need to be corrected sometimes? Because sometimes we're wrong. You know, this is where the Bible uses this really, really scary word called repent. Um, we're scared of the word repent. When we see repent, we see a, 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 a plaque and it says repent or go to hell. And that's what we think of. We think of repent. But repent is not a bad word. Repent just means I was wrong. We're wrong all the time. And we don't make a big deal out of it. And, and part of repentance is just not being scared that God's going to show me truth. But being God showing me truth means that sometimes I have to admit that maybe I didn't believe something right and having a heart that's able to accept correction. And then the last one is training. 
so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Bible is, helps us grow because it's, it's how we train. It's where we put into practice the things that God shows. That it's not just knowledge that stays up here. We, we make that giant 18-inch distance, that jump to our hearts, and we change. And then the Bible starts to come alive. You know, I'm sure you've heard the phrase that most, the, the only Bible that 90% of the world's ever going to read is you in your life. And it's so important that we remember that God has given us his word, not just so we can be smarter than our neighbors, not so we can win an argument, but so that we can put it into practice and show people that if they would taste and see, they would recognize that the Lord is good. Like King David said in Psalms 119, he said, I treasure your word above all the riches in the world. That's how valuable it was to him. Our question today, as I close, was, do I think that the Bible is the inspired word of God that guides my beliefs and actions? And this is a big question. This is a big question. And, and we need to all engage that question honestly. And it's okay to say, I don't know if I do. That's called honesty. It's okay to say, I don't know yet, but I want to. You can trust God's word. You can trust that the creator of the universe gave us what we needed to navigate this life. And it, it's right here, if we would just give it a chance. How you answer that question has huge implications in your life. Um, I'm going to close out in prayer, but if, if after service, if, if the whole Bible thing still confuses you, I would love to chat with you. I trust the Bible. I trust anybody who tries to fight against the Bible. It can stand on its own. Um, and, I, and I trust it. It's God's word. And I hope that we would start to, if you don't already have it, start to embrace a love for God's word speaking into our lives like you've never seen before.